I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. All opinions and discussions on the podcast are purely individual experience, so please consult a doctor or medical professional for more information. Welcome to the Shake It Up Show, a podcast in partnership with Shake It Up Australia Foundation for Parkinson's Research, where we speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Parkinson's disease and hear their stories. My name is Amy Louise Ruffle. I'm an actor, comedian, podcaster, and most importantly, a proud Shake It Up Australia ambassador in support of my dad who lives with Parkinson's. My guest today competes in international para equestrian, has won the Australian Dressage Championship in grade four para and has been long listed for the Paris Paralympic Games. So to tell us more about that and her young onset Parkinson's disease diagnosis, please welcome Kylie Christian. Hi, Kylie. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well and I'm very thrilled to have you on the podcast. And let's start with this equestrian career. How did you get into riding? Oh, gosh. Um, I've been riding since I was like five or six years old. I grew up in Western Queensland and, yeah, everyone just rode out there, went to pony club and did all that with, with everyone out there. And then I've just had horses ever since. And my children all ride. All three of my kids were riding. Now only one rides. And I just haven't stopped. It's something that I enjoy. It's, it's just a love. What is it about the horses and riding that you love? I don't know. I love everything about it. It's not just the riding and having lessons. It's the the looking after them. Every little girl wants a pony and they like to brush them and see them. And, um, you know, sometimes that gets sort of a little bit left behind where people just like to ride and don't like to do all the hard stuff in between. I enjoy the whole lot. And, yeah, it's just, just it's my life now. So they're my life. I don't know. They're just they're my best friends. So how did you then transition that into, I guess, the competitive side? Have you always done competitions or is this something that's relatively new? Yeah, I've always competed. So as I said, um, you know, I was in pony club um, as a young child and then we went through the inter-school competitions. Uh, And then when I left, I joined an adult riders club when I moved to Melbourne from Queensland and did adult riding competitions. It's just a little bit of EA, dabbled in a bit of that. And so I've always competed, but the last few years I sort of had slowed down, mainly one because of the children because, you know, it's, it takes a lot of time, just one horse, let alone three horses to drag around everywhere. And so I sort of put myself on the back burner and also because I noticed that I wasn't riding as well as I thought I could and then I just thought my, my children were better than me and so <laughs> I should probably sort of give up a little bit and concentrate on them. Um, I didn't realise, yeah, what the problem was. Well, that sort of is a natural segue and we'll come back to the para-equestrian career that you have embarked on. But you mentioned that you weren't riding as well as um, you were. So tell us about how your Parkinson's diagnosis came to be. Yeah, I probably have known, I went to a neurologist first in 2018, I think it was from memory, because uh, I just started to get quite numb in my fingers and my toes and I had a little bit of what I call restless leg syndrome. That's what I thought it was anyway. 
Um, and I thought it was to do with sort of pregnancies and all that sort of thing. So I went and saw a neurologist and they sort of thought, no, they did the first few tests and there wasn't much wrong. It was, it was all looking okay. So I didn't go back. And then we went through COVID and things were starting to get worse by then. And just before COVID, people were sort of asking me, um, why are you limping? That was probably the first thing that really worried me that I noticed. I all of a sudden had a limp and I wasn't sore. There was no reason I should have had a limp, but I had this limp. And no matter what I did, I couldn't walk properly. And the harder I tried, the worse it, it, it looked. And there was just no explanation for it. And I had had a hamstring operation. I had torn my hands, hamstring off the bone. And my physio was sort of saying, well, you know, because of COVID, we're not doing the strengthening exercises that we need to do. So, you know, we need to, we need, you need to keep doing that and, and that'll help it. And that's seriously what we thought it was. And then I had frozen shoulder, uh, which was the most painful thing ever. And I was just doing a Pilates class one day and the Pilates teacher was helping an older lady who also had frozen shoulder, and I heard her say to the lady, sometimes frozen shoulder is a neurological, people that have a neurological problem have frozen shoulder, and that's when it sort of hit me, or something's going on here, because I'd always had the shakes, I'd had that for years, Um, and I just used to tell people that was because I was cold, or I was hungry, because I was hungry, yeah, and I just thought everything just sort of, you know, they say it's a progressive disease and it definitely is. Like it didn't all happen at once. And when you look back, you can see little things that sort of happened bit by bit. So my handwriting started getting like really messy to the point where they sent back our passports when I sent them in and told me they were illegible and I couldn't read what was on them. And I'm like, well, that's my writing. And I had beautiful handwriting, like yeah, the nicest handwriting, but that just turned into a scribble and I couldn't even read what I'd written by the end yeah just little things like that I couldn't put my jewelry on I was struggling to do up the the, my earrings or my necklace um and then I started not being able to use a knife and fork so I just sort of cut all my food up at the bench and eat from a bowl with just one fork so it was mainly left-sided for me and still is yeah that's when sort of my husband I guess and a few of my family members started noticing because um, the other things I had a viable reason for them happening, like my limp, you know, my hamstring, my shoulder, and they said that that was the weakness and that's why I was shaking more on my left because I was weak on that side. So I had an excuse for all of those things. It wasn't until I started adding them all up and I thought there's something wrong here. It was actually my riding instructor. I was trying to do my bridle up and I couldn't get the clip. I couldn't get it done up. And the more someone watches you, the more anxious and nervous that you get, the more shaky you get. And so I could see her watching me. I could feel her watching me. And I just, I couldn't do it. And she just looked at me and she said, Kylie, you've, you've got something wrong. You need to, you need to go and see a doctor. It's amazing yeah. how that stuff can sort of bubble under the surface. And like you said, you chalk it up to these other things in your life as to why you're having these symptoms. And often it takes someone from an outside perspective being like, hang on, there's a few too many yeah. going on here at once. Um, but when you did finally get that diagnosis, how was that moment? Obviously, young onset Parkinson's disease is not something that younger people are often even aware of. So was it quite a shock? Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of, to be honest with you, I had done Dr. Google because the shaking had become really, really bad and the limping was to the point where I couldn't walk over to feed my horses anymore. 
And the funny thing about it is I can run easier than I can walk. And that's got something to do with the pathways and et cetera, et cetera. So I had, I had it, I had it in my mind that it kept coming up with Parkinson's, Parkinson's. And I'm like, no, it can't be. And so when I went to the doctor, they did a blood test and they said to me, we're hoping it comes back with something wrong with your thyroid because that can often present the same way. And then when I rang for the results and the nurse said to me, oh, no, they're clear. So that's really good. And I went, oh, no, no, it's not. Um, So that meant then I got referred to a neurologist. And the wait for a neurologist then was three months for an urgent appointment. And that was because of COVID. And my friend come to visit me and she was a nurse and she just looked at me and she said, no, no, no. How do I know you haven't had a stroke? Because things had gotten quite bad. And because of COVID, I'd been able to hide away and nobody had seen me, nobody had seen anyone. And so nobody had to ask me or see the progression that had happened. So, yeah, it had gotten quite bad. And she just packed a bag and we went into the emergency. And by that night, I had seen a neurologist. I'd had, had MRIs and... He sat down and he crossed his arms in the chair and he sat back and he just said to me, you have early onset Parkinson's. And it was it was a shock, but it was almost like a little bit of a weight lifted as well because I had an answer. And I sort of knew that that answer was coming. Uh, you know, the, the checks that he'd been doing with me that day, it was pretty obvious what he was checking for. It was like a bit of a weight lifted off my shoulders. I had an answer. And the first thing he did, he looked at me and he said, it's not going to kill you. You're not going to die. You know, we can manage this. You'll be fine. So, yeah, I just then I looked at him and I said, well, I'm going to ride paradressage now. <laughs> I had so many injuries throughout the, the years because I do silly things and I put myself in silly situations because we live out on the property, etc. But I always used to joke that very soon I'd be able to ride para. And so it was something that was that I knew, and it was something I knew about as well, because we had a friend that's daughter does it, and so you know I'd seen inside that world. Yeah, and I guess that really helped me not slip down into a mental depression quite badly, um, because I had a goal to strive for and something to reach for and a reason to get out of bed in the mornings. Yeah, I just didn't go home and roll up in a ball and cry and rock yeah absolutely I mean something that is a recurrent theme is the importance of having purpose and things to be like looking forward to and giving you that hope and motivation but also interested in what you were saying about I guess getting that diagnosis of course it's not necessarily the news anybody wants to hear but once you actually have an answer you know what it is that you're fighting then you can start to put those things in place to reduce symptoms or to be working on that so given once you did get that news what were yeah. some of the things you started to do to help with your symptoms well as i said i was in the hospital which seems a bit silly but he kept me there and we started the medication because it can make you a little bit ill to start with and it did And you go on really quite a low dose to start with and then you build it up. So you sort of start with like half a tablet a day and then you go to one tablet half at night and, you know, half in the morning and then you increase that over a couple of weeks. And it does take a couple of weeks to take effect. And it was pretty much on the two-week mark that I noticed. What I noticed first, and it seems silly, um, because I love my netball and I've always played netball and I could no longer do fast feet at netball, which is like such a basic under nines thing to do drill to do and I couldn't do them and I was sort of fluffing around and making excuses for it and I'd just jog off or 
something, you know. And I was in the bathroom one night and I just tried to do fast feet and I could do them again. And that was the first time. It was pretty much two weeks after I started the medication to the day. And I said to my husband, look, look, I can do fast feet. And, yeah, just silly little things like that. I could cut my food up again. Well, I still have trouble doing up jewellery and shoelaces and, you know, all those sort of things. But just the basic things. My limp, my limp disappeared. It's not completely gone, but it's so much better. Yeah, little things like that. It was amazing just the difference that the medication made for me. Just everything started to, to improve and become easier. Which is fantastic to hear. I'm so glad to hear that you've got those abilities back, I guess, and having a bit more freedom in what you're able to do in your life. Talk to me about the support uh, around you and your family. I know there was something called the the mop chop earlier um, yeah. involved uh, some yeah. of your, your family. So tell us about what their support has been like and what it means to you. Yeah, they have been absolutely amazing. <sighs> We had a chat to my children when I got home from the hospital about what it meant and, you know, kids being teenage kids, they'd already Googled it and had found out all the gruesome information that they they were firing questions at me. But that was kind of good. They were sort of, they were still quite young but old enough to understand. But to them, I'm still mum. You know, they don't sort of give me any leniency, I can tell you that. Um, my husband, he has just been incredible. He just looked at me and said, till death do us part, Chuck. And, you know, and he's, he's there. He's there every second of it. He has just been absolutely amazing. His family have been incredible. My family live in Queensland, so it's really hard for them. Um, and I get embarrassed when I go home to see them because I'm, I know they're all looking to find something wrong with me, you know, you know how much has she progressed, et cetera. But, yeah, the mop chop came about because my little boy – had a mullet and that was the thing that was in our little town at the time all the boys had mullets and I hate them and he wouldn't get it cut and I offered him I offered to pay him all this money and he just wouldn't get it cut and I thought to myself hmm I said would you cut it off for mummy mate for charity and he went oh I guess so mum and I'm like right okay so that's how the mop shop started and that was all it was about it was just one little kid that I wanted to raise some money for Parkinson's to chop his mullet off. And then some other um, family friends heard about it and they said, oh, let our, our boys want to do it too. So they got involved. And then we realised that to make money, we had to, like chopping the mullets off wasn't going to make the money. We had to do it somewhere where there was lots of people that could donate, et cetera, et cetera. And as I said, I was involved with the netball and my football netball club have just been the, the biggest supportive community I could have ever imagined. And we held it at the football one day, a seniors match. And, yeah, we raised $6,500. We chopped off countless numbers of mullets and not even mullets, just anyone, everyone was just sitting up there and having their hair chopped off and shaved off. And and then our netball manager, God love her, Sue, we raised $2,000 to shave her head. Yeah, they just, everyone, it was just incredible. It was the most amazing feeling I've never felt anything like it before I just stood there that night and people I didn't even know were you know just not throwing money but throwing money and just you know they just shoot me a glance and a bit of a wink and just to let me know that they were behind me it was it's the most incredible feeling to know that you've got that whole community support 
it really, really is, yeah. It sounds like you have an incredible network there. And not only was that a great fundraiser, but what a community service to rid the world of more mullets because I too hate mullets. <laughs> so I love that we could get a few of them gone under the guise of a charity oh, event. <laughs> I can't see how they are at all attractive. I'm sorry. I just, oh. I never feel more disconnected to the youth than the fact that that is an appealing thing to young people is these crazy mullets. They're dreadful, absolutely dreadful. So Hurstbridge has been rid, rid of, well, a few of them anyway. So We so, thank you for your fundraising yeah. efforts, but we also thank you for <laughs> making the, the hair welcome. a little bit better. <laughs> You're welcome. So just another um, quick question before I let you go. For someone that's just been diagnosed with Parkinson's, is there any sort of advice that you would give them or something that's sort of helped you on your journey or that you've learnt um, from your last couple of years? Yeah. Uh, Like we were just talking, it's super important to have a supportive network around you, um, whether it's family or friends or whoever you, you have. I think I made the decision early on to be honest about it and and let people know what was happening to me. That was sort of a hard decision because it is embarrassing. I was super embarrassed by it, you know, because it, you know, I now have a disability and, you know, yeah, it's it, it was quite confronting, but I did make that decision to be open about it, to let people know. And I think that's helped because I sort of said from the get-go, I'm okay. I'm still me. I don't need your help unless I really I'll ask for it if I need it so don't feel sorry for me but yeah if I need your help I'll ask and if you could be there that'd be wonderful and so the fact that everyone knows what's going on you know they see if I'm struggling one day you know for example you know I can only walk a certain amount of distance before it starts I become fatigued and my leg starts sort of going out to the side again and I've got that limp and I'll sort of lag behind everybody else and my daughter will just grab my hand and she's like a crutch and she just sort of yeah helps me and doesn't say anything just grabs my arm mm-hmm. and and all the kids do and and the husband as well yeah everyone's just there I just think being honest and and having that support you've got to talk about it the hardest thing that I find about the whole thing is the mental side of it knowing because it is progressive, what my future potentially looks like. You know, you're not supposed to know your future. So I already know that I'm going to need all these aids in the house to help me get around. I already know that, you know, more than likely, unless unless that miracle cure becomes available, that I'll probably will end up in a wheelchair, you know, and possibly unable to feed myself, et cetera. Um, and that's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. So I think the more you can be open and honest about it and talk about it and let it all out and let people know what you're struggling with, the easier it sort of becomes. Yeah, because if you do bottle it up inside and try and be really tough, I'm telling you, it, it gets the better of you. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, it's a lot to be grappling with that stuff. And the more you can, I guess, share it and normalize is not the right word but you know we don't feel embarrassed if we break an arm and it's it's strange that we have these yeah. sort of exceptions around um certain different types of illnesses or disabilities that they should feel some level of embarrassment or shame where it's not true but and the more you can speak about it and i guess help educate people then there's less 
that's unknown and to fear or to feel embarrassed about because it's not it's not who you are it's something that you live with it's just a little part of you not yeah. you. and I think a lot of people do resonate with feeling embarrassed and then they don't have that I guess community to talk to or that person yeah. to vent about some of the things that are going on in their head and that just exacerbates the the experience yeah right I think also having a goal as I said earlier you know, I've got something to get out of bed for in the morning. Like I've got an amazing family. I feel terrible when I say that. But I've got my horse Oscar, which he came into my life like two weeks after I was diagnosed. And, you know, he was a FEI dressage horse, which then enabled me to get into the para dressage and, and look at doing international competitions because he's of that standard. And and it just it took me on a whole nother pathway that I never imagined I could go on and a, such an exciting ride that I've had, it's been incredible. And it just gets me out of bed every day to care for him, to look after him, to work him and to reach our goals. And it's just a, you know, would I change anything? Yes, I'd love not to have the disease, absolutely, but it's taken me on a, a pathway that's incredible as well. So there is light at the end of the tunnel if you just allow it, allow it to shine in. It's, um, it's, it's there, it's possible you can still be happy and have Parkinson's. So para-equestrian, where are we at? Or obviously the goal is Paris 2024. So what's training yep. like at the moment and then what is the selection process to get to Paris? Yeah, so I have been long-listed and our competitions now start, um, our qualifying competitions start for for Paris in October is the first one here in Melbourne and then then there's a couple in New South Wales and then uh, one back here in Melbourne again. So from now on, Oscar and I have to achieve a certain score to be able to qualify. Um, they only take four riders um, and there's five different grades that are competing for a spot as well. So it's a big ask, but it's a big ask in any sport. Yeah, so we're putting our all in, spending the time in the saddle, just trying to at the moment, what I'm trying to do is just squeeze an extra half a point out of every movement and try and work out how I can do that with Oscar, with my coaches. And, yeah, and we are on the lookout for another potential horse. If I find one in time, I'll campaign that one for Paris as well. Um, otherwise, that would be for future, like WEG in a couple of years and then uh, LA the next the next Paralympics after Paris. So it's a long-term goal that I have. And as I said to my husband, this is how I justify it. It's it's my work. It's what I do now. It's my job. When he rings me and says, where are you? And I'm on my way to a lesson. I'm like, oh, I'm at work. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. It's, it's pretty much all I do, yeah. So, yeah, we've got we've got big goals and big dreams, but, yeah, they're my goals now. Well, it is very exciting. We wish you all the best for all of the training that goes into it because, like you said, being a, an athlete is a full-time job and it takes so much commitment and dedication for anyone to pursue excellence. So good luck with that. Thank you for the fundraising you've done for Shake It Thank Up you. thus far. And we'll have to touch base to hear about how you and Oscar or the new horse are going uh, yeah. things moving forward. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Hopefully it's with Oski. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us, Kylie. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Shake It Up Australia funds groundbreaking Australian research that aims to slow, stop 
and cure Parkinson's disease. And they need your help. To support Shake It Up's vision of a world without Parkinson's, head to shakeitup.org.au forward slash podcast. Together, we can find a cure.